0: Hi, I'm Bree. And I'm Haley. And this is Calendar of Crime, where each week we examine a case from this week in history. The case we have for you today occurred in Manchester, New Hampshire, where in April of 1980, a 14-year-old girl disappeared from her apartment. In the 42 years since, investigators still have not been able to answer the question, what happened to Lorreen Ann Rand? Loreen Ann Rand was born April 3, 1966, in Manchester, New Hampshire. The identity of her father was never released, and it's unclear if Loreen knew who he was. Loreen and her mother, Judith, were very close while Loreen was growing up, with Judith even usually bringing Loreen along on dates. Loreen was a dedicated student and enjoyed dancing and singing and dreamed of becoming an actress. Once she began attending Parkside Junior High, she got into trouble a couple of times, but it was never for anything serious. At some point, while attending Parkside Junior High, Lorraine began telling friends she was moving to Florida, and she soon stopped attending that school. But a year later, her friends discovered that she was still living in the same apartment and had transferred to Southside Junior High. Why did she transfer instead of moving? And was she ever really supposed to be moving? You know, we actually don't know. There's nothing in the source material to explain what had happened. We can't be sure if it was related to the minor trouble she had gotten into or something else entirely. Unfortunately, the news reporting at the time didn't focus much on her background.
1: That's really frustrating.
0: I know, it is, but this is all that we know. At the time of her disappearance, which came just a few weeks after her 14th birthday, Lorene was living with her mother in a third-floor apartment in Manchester, New Hampshire. On April 26,
1: 1980, Judith and her tennis pro boyfriend were going out of town, and Lorene asked if she could stay home for a quiet day alone. Normally, she would accompany them, but on that specific day, she had asked to be allowed to stay home, and her mother agreed. This was during spring break at Lorene's school.
0: I get that. I often don't want to go anywhere for any reason at all. I agree. Total homebody. But Lorene actually had other plans.
1: Instead of spending the day alone, she had two friends over. There was a girl her own age, and then there was also a 21-year-old man.
0: A 21-year-old man, and she had just turned 14? That was my first thought too. Huge
1: age difference, big red flag, and they weren't just playing board games and eating cookies, hanging out, doing children things. According to Lorene's aunt, Jo Beth Swanson, the three were in the apartment drinking beer and wine. At some point, they heard voices in the hall and the guy left out the back door thinking that the voices were Judith and her boyfriend coming home. He stated that he heard Lorene lock the door behind him when he left.
0: Yeah, I bet he hightailed it out of there pretty quickly. Wouldn't want to be caught drinking with two young girls in an empty apartment when you're a whole adult man. Right? It turns out it
1: wasn't her mom, though, as Judith and her boyfriend didn't arrive home until 1.15 in the morning. They noticed that the hallways were uncharacteristically dark when they arrived, but initially assumed that there was a blown fuse or some sort of electrical problem. When Judith arrived, she found her front door closed but unlocked. The back door was not only unlocked, but also slightly ajar. She locked both of the doors and went in to check on her daughter. At this point, there are two similar accounts of what happened next, and reporting is kind of spotty, so either one of them is possible. Judith's boyfriend questioned why the back door was open, and Judith went to wake Lorene up, only to discover that it was her friend. They immediately began searching for Lorene and called police at 3.45 in the morning to report her missing. The other possibility is that Judith started her nighttime routine and prepared for bed. Once she was ready for bed, she went back into Lorraine's room, hoping to talk to her about the unlocked doors. When she turned the light back on, she realized that it wasn't Lorraine in bed. She woke up Lorraine's friend and asked her where Lorreen was. She said that Lorreen was asleep on the couch. Judith knew that she wasn't there because she had already walked through the living room and noticed that her daughter's purse and personal belongings were still in plain view and she called the police at 3.45 in the morning. Regardless of which account is accurate, on April 27, 1980, at 3.45 a.m., the Manchester police responded to 239 Merrimack Street for a report of a missing 14-year-old female, Lorreen Ran.
0: Responding officers noted the darkened hallways just as Judith and her boyfriend had when they arrived. Police initially suspected Lorreen was a runaway, Judith didn't believe her daughter had left on her own because Lorraine had left behind her clothes and purse. I feel like police
1: always assume that any missing teenager is immediately a runaway.
0: I completely agree, and I really feel like it should be the other way around. Assume foul play, and if it's a runaway situation, no harm done. If you assume runaway and it's foul play, potentially major harm done. Exactly my thought process. The police investigation revealed that there were no signs of a struggle in the apartment and theorized that personal items may have been left behind because Lorraine may have left the apartment willingly with the intent on returning momentarily. Lorraine's friend told the police that she and Lorraine had been drinking and that Lorraine had been in bed, but left the bedroom taking a pillow and blanket to sleep on the couch.
1: Did she also tell them that there was a grown man drinking with them?
0: I didn't see it specifically mentioned, but I think she must have, because despite classifying Lorene immediately as a runaway, the police did take some investigative steps right away, including canvassing the neighborhood, searching for any clues as to where Lorene might have been headed to, and they were actually able to track down the male friend who had been present that night. He stated that he clearly heard the lock of the back door click into place when he left. Police questioned him, but soon cleared him as a suspect. One noteworthy thing that officers found during their initial investigation is that there had been no power problem to have caused the hallway lights to go out at the apartment building. Instead, all the bulbs had been unscrewed just enough to kill the lights. This was the case for every bulb in the hallway, from the ground floor to the top floor.
1: Ew, that is so creepy and
0: clearly done on purpose. I know. Because of this, some of the officers assigned to the case began to think that Lorene may have been abducted, and two camps of thinking quickly emerged. One with officers who believe Lorene was a runaway, and one with officers who believed she had been kidnapped.
1: I can't believe that anyone still thinks that she's a runaway after the entire apartment building hallway lights had been manually unscrewed.
0: I know. Luckily, it didn't last long. As days passed by without any contact from Lorene, more officers began to believe in the possibility that there had been foul play involved. Officers began circulating Lorene's missing person flyer, and news outlets in the area picked up the story. Tips and leads came in, but they all led to dead ends. There were rumors flying around town that there was a fourth person at the apartment that night, another man. However, both friends who were definitely there denied that, and it's never been corroborated by any agency. And unfortunately after that, the case quickly went cold.
1: On October 1st, 1980, Judith discovered that she had been charged for three California phone calls in July, three months after Lorraine disappeared. Judith did not have any friends or relatives in California at the time, and Lorraine had never lived there and had no ties to the area. Judith did believe, though, that these calls were made by Lorraine. When the police traced the numbers, they found that the calls had originated from California. Two of the calls had been placed from a motel in Santa Monica to another motel in Santa Ana. The third call was
0: placed to a teen sexual assistance hotline. This was 1980, so there were no cell phones. How would someone have charged a phone call to Judith's phone? Yeah,
1: neither of us was even alive back then, and I didn't understand that either. Luckily, the book The Disappearance of Lorreen Ann Ran by Ruth Canton explained how this would have been possible in 1980. So, there were two ways that someone could have charged the calls to Judith's number. The caller could have called the phone company and requested a special PIN number. If the person satisfactorily proved that they were the owner of the account, the company would give them the PIN. This could have been used to make calls from virtually anywhere, and Judith's number would have been charged. Alternatively, dialing zero and then Judith's number, and then the recipient's number, was enough to put calls on Judith's bill. This completely bypassed the need to call the phone company and prove
0: any kind of ownership. I had no idea that that was even possible. I bet you can't do that today. I had no idea either.
1: According to published reports, Judith called the phone number associated with the sexual assistance hotline and found it belonged to a doctor who ran the program. He denied knowing anything about the call, though, that had been charged to her bill. It is important to note, Detective Lucas Hobbs, who is currently assigned to cold cases, said there's nothing in the official police file about any of these phone calls. Detective Lucas Hobbs also said, quote, if an investigator discovered that, he did not report it to Manchester police. A few months after Lorraine disappeared, Judith began receiving silent phone calls. The phone would ring and the person on the other end would remain quiet until Judith hung up. The call started out infrequently, but began getting increasingly frequent leading up to the holidays. By the time Christmas Day came around, the calls were coming in almost daily at 3.45 in the morning. Judith was shocked to find out that her sister was also receiving the same phone calls. Judith continued to receive these phone calls around the Christmas holiday for several years from an unknown individual. She said that the person listened silently when she answered the phone and then terminated the call shortly afterwards. The calls stopped after Judith changed her phone number several years after Lorraine vanished in the mid-1980s. Detective Lucas Hobbs also said there is nothing in the official police file about those calls either.
0: So did the calls actually happen and the police just didn't keep record of them or were they fabricated?
1: Our source material all consistently says that these calls happened, so I'm inclined to believe that maybe the police just weren't keeping great records.
0: I can see how that's possible. So did Judith think that these silent calls were from Lorraine? In later years, she said that she did, but she may not have at the
1: time, because by 1986, Judith had changed her phone number and the silent calls had stopped. At one point during that year, Judith received a phone call from one of Lorraine's childhood friends, Roger Morai. He told Judith that he was out of the house when a phone call came in for him. His mother picked up and said that a woman asked to speak to Roger and stated that her name was either Lori or Lorene. The caller claimed to be Roger's ex-girlfriend. When she was told that Roger wasn't home, the caller hung up. Investigators were unable to pinpoint where the call originated from, and the
0: caller's identity remains unknown. I wonder if that incident is what made her believe the calls made to her were from Lorene. That's possible. She did
1: say at one point that because she had changed her number, she wondered if Lorene had just dialed numbers she remembered trying to get a hold of her. Oh, that's sad. She probably questioned herself for changing her number. I know. If you didn't know who was calling you, it's entirely possible that this is someone who was harassing Judith. It could have been Lorene. It could have been a mistake on the phone lines end. I just feel like there's really no explanation that we can pinpoint down.
0: Yeah, and I think that you would have absolutely, like, second-guessed your decision if you changed your phone number to try to get away from somebody who you thought was harassing you and then later thought, oh, maybe that was my daughter. Right. I can't even imagine how awful that would feel. In 1985, Judith hired a private investigator. The police told the private investigator that the two motels involved in the 1980 phone calls charged to Judith's phone bill had been on police radar for suspected sex trafficking. Had they released that information already? No, Judith was not given that information until the private investigator informed her of it. The leader of the suspected sex trafficking ring was known as Dr. Z, and his real name was never discovered. The PI went to the motels, but the sex trafficking ring was no longer operating there, and he was unable to get any more information about it. While he was in Southern California, he connected with police and accompanied them to see the doctor at the teen sexual assistance hotline that Judith had spoken to years before, and the doctor's story had changed since 1980. He claimed that he was not the one who ran the hotline, his wife did. He stated that runaway girls would show up at his house looking for his wife, and Lorene may have been one of them. He stated that he wasn't the one in contact with the girls, but he did possibly remember seeing Lorene at the house sometime after she went missing.
1: That feels really shady. First, he's changing his story and then even potentially claiming that he doesn't know if he's seen Lorene. I don't really buy any of this.
0: Yeah, me either. And it gets worse. He stated that he thought Lorene was at one point with Annie Sprinkle and directed officers to her for more information. Who is Annie Sprinkle? Annie Sprinkle was an adult film actress and had been featured in a number of movies by 1985. Investigators thought that if Sprinkle knew Lorraine, it was likely she had been abducted by sex traffickers. Oh, God, no. Yeah, but investigators tracked down Sprinkle and she claimed that she had never met Lorraine and that she was friends with the hotline doctor's wife but had never gotten involved with any of the girls from the hotline. Officers collected Sprinkles' films dating back to 1980 after Lorene disappeared and watched them closely to see if Lorene was present in any of the scenes. She was not, and so investigators cleared Sprinkle. So this was just a giant wild
1: goose chase.
0: Basically, yeah, there seemed to be all these great leads, but none of them led to anything. There have been several potential sightings of Lorene over the years.
1: One of Lorene's family members reported seeing a girl matching her description in a Boston, Massachusetts bus terminal in 1981. The family member didn't approach her, but seemed certain that it had been Lorene. Why would the family member not approach her? There's no information on that in the source material, and it's super frustrating. In 1988, a man called the police and stated that he may have seen Lorreen. The girl he had seen was a sex worker where he lived in Anchorage, Alaska. Investigators asked the Anchorage police to follow up, and when they did, they interviewed him and found him to be credible. Authorities said that the witness recognized Lorene based on her 1980 photo. They searched the street for sex workers but were unable to find anyone matching Lorreen's description.
0: Did the authorities think it was actually Lorreen and they just couldn't find her, or did they think it was mistaken identity? It seems like they thought the witness was telling the truth, but that doesn't necessarily
1: mean they believed he had actually seen Loreen, just that he believed he had.
0: Yeah, and I guess if he was basing a 1988 sighting on a 1980 photo, he could have made a mistake. Definitely, especially considering that she was
1: 14 when she disappeared, so by 1988, she would have been 22.
0: Oh, yeah. There are usually drastic changes between early teens and early 20s.
1: Absolutely. The last potential sighting came sometime around 2010. Police received a tip that Lorraine had been seen in Massachusetts. Detectives, however, confirmed that the individual that was seen was not Lorraine.
0: That's interesting, though, because the 1981 sighting was also in Massachusetts. That's true.
1: New Hampshire isn't far, so people may be more aware of the story and a little more on the
0: lookout there. Oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Over the years, investigators have searched through other cases looking for ones that shared similarities with Lorene's. Did they find anything? So, they found three other cases of interest. One was Rachel Elizabeth Garden. She disappeared on March 22, 1980. She was 15. She was last seen at Rose Corner Market in Newton, New Hampshire, where she had purchased gum and a pack of cigarettes, and then started walking along Main Street towards a friend's place where she was supposed to spend the night. She never arrived and was reported missing at 10 the next morning. Police thought she may have run away, but her family was adamant that she had not. A witness came forward and stated that he had seen Garden speaking to three men in a car. The men were found, and they had criminal pasts, but police couldn't find any evidence tying them to Garden's disappearance. One of the men eventually confessed to killing Garden and even gave police the supposed location of her body, but no evidence was recovered when investigators searched the area.
1: I definitely see similarities there. Close in age, proximity, the, even the fact that the police initially considered her a potential runaway.
0: Yeah, exactly. Another noteworthy case was that of Shirley Ann McBride. She was last seen on July thirteenth, 1984 at around 9.30 p.m. 15-year-old Shirley left her sister's apartment in Concord, New Hampshire and was planning to pick up some money she was owed and then head over to her boyfriend's work. She was never seen again, although her family didn't report her missing for several days. Police categorized her as a runaway at first, but eventually began to suspect foul play. Investigators questioned the boyfriend, but he was cleared and there were no further leads. Shirley's family declared her legally dead in 1996, 12 years after she disappeared. Again, close in age, proximity, but this runaway thing? I know. Like we said earlier, it makes no sense that police always go to runaway as their default when it's a teenager, but I digress. The other disappearance that stood out was that of Denise Ann Denault. She was not of a similar age to Lorene. She was a 25-year-old divorced mother of two, but she lived two blocks from Lorene's apartment complex. She was last seen on June eighth, 1980, only three months after Lorene disappeared. She was living with a roommate on Hayward Street in Manchester, New Hampshire. She attended a private social club that night and was last seen leaving the downtown club at around 1.30 in the morning. She told people she was heading to another party, and then she was never seen or heard from again. Despite the age difference between Denise and Loreen, Denise closely resembled Lorene and investigators wondered quickly if their disappearances were connected. It was later discovered that Denise lived a few doors down from a man calling himself Bob Evans, and he was later revealed to be Terry Rasmussen, a suspected serial killer known for the Bear Brook murders.
1: I'm sorry. So there was a serial killer living in the neighborhood, the very same neighborhood where Lorraine disappeared from.
0: Yeah, I was shocked when I read that detail. I'm pretty familiar with the Bear Brook murders, and I know who Terry Rasmussen is. But I didn't know about this potential connection to Lorene's disappearance until I found it in the source material. That's crazy. Have investigators looked into him for her disappearance? Well, they've definitely looked into him for Denise's disappearance, but it's unclear if they have tried to connect Lorene to him. Wow. Well, I hope that's something that's still under investigation. Yeah, me too. I think it's a good lead at least. All four women disappeared within a 30 mile radius of each other under similar circumstances but have never been officially connected, and all four cases remain open to this day.
1: In the years following Lorraine's disappearance, the man who was drinking alcohol with her and her friend that night committed suicide in 1985. He was never considered a suspect in her case. Investigators looked into him again after the suicide, but still found no connection between the suicide and Lorraine's disappearance.
0: It's crazy how they just cleared him. I mean, they must have had some reason to, and obviously that maybe hasn't been released to us since the case is not closed. But also, he was 21 and drinking with 14-year-old girls.
1: Yeah, they must have had some reason to clear him, but I'm not crazy about it, that's for sure. Judith moved to Florida during the years after Lorraine's disappearance and remarried. She does still believe that her daughter placed the three California phone calls in July of 1980. Investigators continue to suspect that foul play was involved in her case, which remains unsolved. Tony Fowler of Auburn was a Manchester detective lieutenant who worked on the case 20 years ago. Now retired, he believes that Lorraine left the apartment to meet someone, and because she didn't take any clothes with her, she had every intention of returning home. While he would like to think that she is still alive, he does believe that she is a victim of foul play.
0: I mean, unfortunately, the reality is that it's pretty unlikely for someone to disappear and then stay disappeared for so long. I agree. Jo Beth Swanson,
1: Lorene's aunt, said, In my heart, I want to believe she's alive, but I don't know. She said Judith Rand came from a family of 11 siblings, so there are still some aunts, uncles, and cousins around. There's an aunt who doesn't believe she's dead, and some who don't want to believe she's dead. Swanson has kept the same phone number since the day Loreen went missing. She said the two of them were close. Swanson was 22 years old and married to Judith's brother at the time of the disappearance. She believes that if Lorreen was still alive, she would have called her.
0: Lorreen Ann Rand has never officially been seen or heard from since the night of April 26, 1980. If she is alive today, Lorreen would be 56 years old. Loreen is a white female with brown hair and blue eyes. She has a prominent scar on her upper leg resulting from a fall onto broken glass. She has light brown birthmarks under each eye. Lorraine was last known to be wearing a white V-neck sweater, a blue plaid blouse, jeans, brown shoes, a heart-shaped gold ring, and a silver and blue necklace. Anyone with information regarding Lorraine's disappearance is urged to call the investigative agency, the Manchester Police Department at 603 668 or to send in a tip through the New Hampshire Department of Justice tip line, which we will link to on our website. For all details and sources regarding
1: this case, you can check out the show notes or go to our website, calendarofcrime.com. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Calendar of Crime, and we'll be back next week with a brand new case from that week in history.